I welcome you to New Hope Fellowship as we look to God's Word today. Different passages have different degrees of difficulty to prepare a sermon. And some sermons take a bit of work, and some sermons just kind of uh, fit easily. If you tap a hammer on this passage, it falls so easily into the structure. You can see it so clearly. And that structure, I just want to refer you to your bulletins now. Take a look at your bulletins real quick. This, what's being provided for you there is a clear structure in which Peter has outlined his thought, which God is speaking through. So let me just run over with you that structure very simply. It's in 4.7. It begins with those six words. The end of all things is near. The end of the world, the end literally, the end of all things is near. Then there's a big fat, therefore, in these four commands. Focus, these are the way that I've kind of paraphrased and kind of taken some of the language of Peter. Therefore, focus yourself prayerfully, love one another graciously, offer hospitality to one another genuinely, and serve one another glorifyingly. And that word is misspelled in your bulletins. I apologize for that. But that's not a real word anyway. I made that up. So don't, you don't have to worry about that. That therefore, when I really highlight your attention to that therefore, is that the end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled, be clear-minded, self-controlled so that you can pray above all things, love one another deeply. It keeps on going there, you know, after the therefore. But I'm going to focus nearly, I think, about 85 to 90% of this message on that first sentence. The end of all things is near. The reason why is because to the degree that you can believe that opening statement, the end of all things is near, is to that same degree that you will act on everything that follows after the therefore namely being self-clear-minded, self-controlled, loving each other deeply, serving one another, glorifying God. All those things come after the therefore. So it is absolutely critical that you have in your minds the reality that Peter has in his mind. Let me say it one more time. The end of all things is near. Therefore, live a focused life prayerfully serve one another, love one another. All these things flow out of that one opening statement. And so let me show you a little bit before I pray and get to that first statement in 4.7, a little bit of how this works. The setting of this text is that Christians often get distracted by looking at the world of the lives of unbelievers around them. And you look at unbelievers and you think these people who don't know God, who never pray, who never want to serve one another, who don't, are not really filled with Christian love at all. These people seem to be getting ahead and ahead of me. They are further along in career success. They seem to be having more pleasure in the ways of sin. And they are following on the wide superhighway of sin. And in comparison, my life of being clear, minded as a Christian and self-controlled seems awfully restrictive and unattractive. This narrow, straight way of Christ. And we start moving to the right and to the left because we get distracted. We're not living focusedly. We get distracted by all the way that unbelievers live around us. Peter's response to that last week was, but 
as much as other people may consume sin, be absorbed in sin, and then spit sin out, you are done with sin at the cross. You've passed through the cross. And so when he gives you a perspective on the life of your past, is you're done with sin. It's not your life. That's not who you are. And by these six words now, he turns your attention to your future and radically reframes the rest of your existence in these six words. The end is near. The end of all things is near. I can illustrate it to you in this way. This may help you to understand. If you could go back in time and if you could just kind of corral up all of the corporate people in the boardroom and all just the corporate heads, all the CEOs and CFOs and the big wigs, and if you just kind of sit them all down and say, this is, let's say, let's take us back maybe about two years back. You have all these, the head of all the major corporations and you would just sit them down and say, you know those big, fat, multi, multi-million dollar bonus checks that you write to yourselves all the time. And when you get, and you just give yourself these huge, humongous, obscene bonuses, I urge you strongly to reconsider that. And they are going to be sitting around thinking, I can't really hear you over the clinking of gold cougarans in my pocket. What are you talking about? We all write each other big, fat bonus checks. I mean, everybody does it. It's the way this whole world works. What are you talking about? We love our bonuses. We look forward to the end of the year. We don't care about Christmas. We care about the bonus check that we're going to write ourselves at the end of that year. And they mostly would not listen to you. But if a few of them had been wise, they would have come out in a very different fashion than everybody else at this point in time. If you could round up all of those people who are just buying houses and speculating in the real estate market... And if you just sat them all down and said, I know you want to buy a house. I know you want to be a homeowner. But I have a brand new financial principle that's going to rock your world. Forget about Suze Orman. Forget about Jim Cramer. I have a radically new revolutionary financial principle. And it is going to change your life. It is called, buy only what you can afford. Buy what you can afford. And they would all look back at you and said, but these people are giving me credit. But can you afford that house? No, not at all. But I'm getting all this easy credit. And then you would supplement that major principle of buy only what you can afford. And you could say, give them a new principle underneath that and say, just because someone offers you credit does not mean you have to take it. I get envelopes nearly every single day that say urgent, time-sensitive material. And if they come from Wilmington, Delaware, they go instantly into the trash. Just because someone's offering me credit does not mean that you have to take it. Trust me. I'm saving you from a world of hurt here. You could say to the entire financial world and say, you need to radically rethink everything you've been thinking about. And stop thinking about financial excess and think about financial responsibility. Think about it, you guys are drunk on greed. You don't need another $100 billion, $100 million, but you just keep on chasing after it. You're intoxicated by greed. And it is going to be to your great detriment, I promise you. It's going to come to an end very soon. And if you can change before it's too late, we can offset an economic recession the likes we have not seen in this country in a long, long time. 
And those who had ears, if they had listened, it would have been radically different if they had believed you when, they would, when you would have told them that the end is near. What we believe about the end radically informs and shapes how we live in the present. So let me give you one more to the point example of how this operates. I've chosen my path as a pastor. That, set, that, was, that was set about when I was age 19, and I knew I was going to be a pastor. And I knew that that meant giving up certain things in life. I knew that being a pastor, that I would never have to struggle with an excess amount of money. I would never have to go through the struggle of, I have all these mountains of money. I don't know how to spend it all. I just keep on wanting to accrue more and more money. I do not have the capability to struggle with that, actually. So every once in a while, and mostly I am, I, the choice that I have made is one of peace. But I struggle in this heart every once in a while. And these are the moments of my struggle, I just have to say. It is those times sometimes when I'll be going on a flight someplace. And as I'm going on a flight, I don't know, I think the airline just kind of strategically designed it this way. They march you right past the first class when you're going to your economy seat. And I think that they've timed it. So just as you pass the first class and they're kind of luxuriating in their seats, which are twice the size of mine, that just as you're passing by, some Coleman stewardess is coming along and offering, can I get you a champagne, a, a mimosa, would you like? And then I'm thinking, and then you just kind of pass that and you enter into your squeezed in narrow economy seat. And you're looking back glancing at the first class every once in a while and thinking about this life of privilege, this life of wealth, and possibly this life of fame. Who is there who just flies everywhere first class? Are they jet-setting to some villa that they own after just having produced a record with Puff Daddy? Who are these elite who are there? And, and this, it becomes attracting. And you become distracted by that. And you want and start to yearn for the things of the world. And the narrow road of Christ becomes extremely unattractive. You become distracted. On one such a flight, this is just, I've, I've told a few of you this, this story, but on one such a flight, I had my just world snap back into focus in a, in a second, in a moment. I was, a, it was a, I was on a red eye. It was like maybe about three or four, four o'clock in the morning. And I awoke to the sound of screaming. I would say about 50% of the plane was screaming. And I think half of them had awoken to the sound of their own voices screaming. And the reason why is because that plane had taken just a plunge about several hundred feet in so many seconds. And it was, it was something like you would hear in a roller coaster. Everyone is just screaming. It's just, un, it's just this uninhibited, instinctive crying out as our plane is plummeting hundreds of feet. In that moment, I was not caring whether the first class got a better set of food and whether I just got roasted peanuts, but they got served a better course of meal. I was not distracted. I did not care about anything. And my life got brought into a laser focus immediately. And as that plane was dropping, the thoughts that were emerging out of my deep chambers of my heart were these. I don't want this to be, but if it is, I'm ready. I'm ready. If this is to be it, and the plane goes down, and we crash in flames, and we are all killed, then the next conscious moment that I will have after that burning incendiary death 
is that the, I will see the face I've been pursuing for the rest of my life. The next second, the next moment after I lose consciousness in that plane crash, I am waking up on the far shore where I've been reaching for my whole life, bathed in glory, absolutely eternal, before the throne room of God. I am ready. If I perish, I perish. And the next thought following that was all these other people around me. Are they ready? Are they ready? You start thinking a radically different way if you believe the end of all things is near. And if you look at this text, I promise you, everybody on that plane, or most nearly everybody, we were all praying. I mean, I, I mean this, the plane stabilized, by the way, obviously. And, you know, we were, we were okay. And actually, the, and, the, and the pilot never even came on to tell us what happened. Just, all I know is that we plunged a few hundred feet. And I think Christian and non-Christian alike, I think we were all praying. It's an amazing thing. It's the, the Bible is exhorting you and saying, the end of all things is near. Be clear-minded, self-controlled so you can pray. Stop being distracted and learn to live focusedly so you can pray. Our lives were being brought into an incredibly sharp focus. And prayers were of the intense variety. They were of the focused, clear-minded variety. And so what is that? I would like to admonish us to pray right now before we look at carefully at 4.7. What I'm calling the paradox of 1 Peter 4, 7, this sentence, this troubling word, the end of all things is near. And if we just pray just before we approach that text where we're going to spend the majority of our time as we look at these verses. Father, as we come before you now and we ask that even as we open up the word, that God, that you would open up our hearts and you would open up our minds. We're praying for, a, praying for a clarity, God, in your truth. And that, God, that we could hear these words, not as the words of man, but as the words of God, that we would recognize the truth. Father God, I pray for a self-authenticating power that we would see that this book that we have before us is our sole window unto true reality, that all else is distraction at best, illusion at worst, and you alone are the way, the truth, God in the life. God of grace, would you open up First Peter 4, 7 to us. We pray this, God in grace, in Christ Jesus' name. We'd ask, as we look, and we're going to, again, we're going to just hit that more than any other part, because everything else flows out of that. The end of all things is near. What, what to just take account real quick, if you live like that, if you believe that the end of all things is near, how your life would radically be reoriented and your priorities would shift, for some of you, 180 degrees, if you really understood and believed the end of all things is near. We'd like for you to keep First Peter 4 open and just stick a finger in Matthew 24 as I, as I speak. So just as you're listening to me, if you could just kind of multitask, keep 1 Peter 4 open, but go and put a finger in Matthew 24. So we talk about the end of the world and this extremely serious matter. I want to say something which I could not have said, I think maybe even 10 years ago. I don't think I could have said this and just so, so clearly. 
the people of the world, modern people today, I mean, unbeliever, believer alike, the people of the world globally, they take the end of the world seriously. Is that not true? I could, preaching the same text 10 years ago, I could not have said that. I think most people just did not think about the end of the world. And now, the end of the world is on people's minds in a way that it just has never been. At least in our, I think, our modern time, in our modern history. I don't know how many of you guys have seen this movie called 2012. And I've just seen the trailers for this movie. But it, the movie is about the end of the world according to the Mayan calendar. And so 2012, it's amazing now the way that movies have gotten so incredibly realistic in CGI that you just see these enormous tidal waves crashing over, sweeping over the coastlands, submerging, destroying the entire world. And movies like 2012, they are, you can't swing a dead cat these days without hitting some kind of apocalyptic movie. There is just a string, a spate of movies about the end of the world. And so they're, is this fascination with the end of the world. And so modern people take the end of the world, I believe, quite seriously. And so there's a, there's a website, which I got tuned into about two years ago, called longbets.org. I don't know about this website. It's a web, website started by this guy named Stuart Brand with money from, uh, from Bezos, the guy, the Amazon.com founder. So there's this website where you can bet on anything. And so you, just, you can bet on absolutely anything. And there's a whole bunch of bets there that are being placed on how the world will end. This is some seriously strange betting. But some people are saying, I think the world will end at such and such a time in this way. I think the end will end by, the world will end by what? Like something like nuclear catastrophe in 2030. And there's bets. And you can take bets on this. And I'm not talking about theoretical bets. Real cash money is being placed on bets on how the world is going to end. And that always raises the question for me is, if you are right, how are you going to collect on that bet exactly? But nevertheless, these people are betting. One such bet is that there is one bet that there is about a 50-50, this this one person who's placed a bet gives about a 50-50 chance that the human race will make it to 2100. 50-50% chance that the world will make it to 2100. And the thing is, is that you just kind of think, well, this is some crackpot. And the person that made that bet on longbets.org is a man by the name of Dr. Martin Rees, who is actually the astronomer royale and a Cambridge physicist, cosmologist to be exact. And the reason why that he believes that he doesn't give the world to 2100 is because he thinks even by 2020, this, this is, again, this is a, a Cambridge physicist, cosmologist, who is accredited and who has kind of studied this and thought deeply and profoundly about this. And he thinks that even by 2020, that there will be enough proliferation of biological weapons that by, by either biological terror or biological error, that there will be even casualties of up to one million people in single biological events. He says by 2020 that there will be not just even thousands or millions that have access to chemical biological weapons. That's what he believes as a cosmo- as this person who's kind of a thinking, educated person. And he says he's not worried about just organized terrorist organizations, but the individual, which he calls weirdos, who will be spreading viruses in the way that computer hackers are spreading viruses right now at large. He's worried about these people just going to be cropping up 
And the way that people spread computer viruses is that these people will be spreading biological viruses, ending in these catastrophic events where millions of people die at, at by single occurrences. By 2020, that's what he gives us. Bioterrorism is only one out of the many reasons why people today take the end of the world seriously. It's only one. There are many, many reasons. You cannot open up the newspaper today at all without seeing many reasons why to give credibility to the end of the world. The paradox of modern people is that though modern people take the end of the world seriously, they do not take the Bible seriously when it speaks on matters of the end of the world. And so therefore, the people, when they think about the end of the world, are not, are not clear-minded and self-controlled. They are confused, erratic, and controlled by fear. And that is the temperament, I think, of the world around us as we think about the end of the world. When you ask modern people, why do you dismiss the Bible when it speaks about the end of the world, where it is the one source that can speak to it properly, this is universally, I think in my experience, the answer of why when people think about the end of the world, they do not include the Bible in its equation. In other words, when they come to a statement like this in First Peter, that the end of the world is near, they dismiss it out of hand. And the reason being is that they believe that that claim to be a relative claim on truth. Hang with me because this is the trickiest part of logic in this entire message. They believe that to be a relative claim on truth. And what I mean by that is that people, modern people who are not believers, when they see that statement in the Bible, the end of all things is near, they see it as a relative statement and not an absolute one. Meaning, they say that that is what people thought back then. Everybody thought that back then. That's just kind of people were talking about apocalypse and that's in that time of superstition. And we know better now in 2009. We, I mean, we don't believe that stuff anymore. That's a relative truth claim, they think. And when I, well, the reason why I call that a paradox is because the thing is, is that if you ask this people about that same assumption, and they say that, all right, so you believe that that's a relative truth claim. In other words, that those people thought that back then, but we now know that that's not true. We don't believe things like that. When the Bible talks about things like creationism or gender orientation, that's relative. That's what they thought back then. We know better now. And when you ask modern people about that truth assumption, which I just made, and you say, is that truth claim that you just made, is that also a relative truth claim? In other words, is that a truth claim also that is just for now, but then later on it can also be overturned? By and large, the people that I've met and I've talked to do not think that. They believe that those people were wrong then, they thought that back then, they didn't know better, they didn't have modern science, so that's what they thought back then. But now we know better we, all the people that lived thousands of years ago and in the Middle Ages and all that, they were all wrong. We, what we think today in our time is correct, is the truth. And if you ask them, then 
in a hundred years from now, in a two hundred years from now, do you think people will be looking back at our time and saying, well, that's what they thought back then, but now we know better? People by and large say, no, I don't think so. I think when I look, we look to the future, they will only prove that we were correct about evolution, correct about gender orientation, correct about the nature of religion. What we believe right now corrects the past and it's going to be vindicated by the future. Do you understand what I'm saying? That we live in our modern time in this very strange paradox where people view that the, the truth of the word of God is relative. It's what they thought back then. It doesn't apply now. It's not relevant today. Where they can believe that the word of God is relative truth, but their own truth claims are eternal. In other words, they are true and they overturn the past errors of previous thinking and they will stand the test of time in the future. They think that their truth is eternal. And it is a curious place to stand where you look at the word of God and say, it's relative. We don't believe that. We don't think that way anymore. That's what they thought back then. It's not true now. Where you can look at the word of God and say, that truth is relative, but the word of man, the thinking that we have as enlightened modern people in 2009 is the truth. They were all wrong in the past, and in the future they will all say that we were right in 2009. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Let me, let, me, let me put in the words of G.K. Chesterton. Just a way of term phrases. Chesterton said the hardest thing about any time is to understand that it is just a time. The hardest thing about any time is to understand that it is just a time. All of our thinking is bound by our time. What we think about evolution is not what people thought about the creation of the world a thousand years ago. It's not what people think thought even 500 years ago or maybe even 100 years ago. It's a relatively new thought, this concrete conviction on evolution. I'm not even saying evolution is right or wrong, but I'm saying that it is radically overturned all the previous theories that people thought about the creation of the world in previous years, in previous ages, in previous times. And the thinking of man is always relative because it's time-bound. If you are intellectually honest, you must entertain the possibility that as we overturn the thinking of even a hundred years ago by our concrete is the truth and it's going to always stand, that a hundred years from now, somebody could be looking back at 2009 saying, what were we thinking back then? What we know now about cosmology and the creation of the universe and the formation of stars and and anthropology and the biology of the human being, it's radically changed. There was another Einstein, there was another Copernicus, another Galileo who arrived on the scene and thoroughly overturned everything that we believe to be so self-evident just because everybody in our time, in our modern era, holds it to be true. The thinking of man is always relative because we are bound by our finite time. And the only reason that we think that it's eternal and it's going to stand the test of time is because we are bound by our finite time. We can't look past our own years. To have an eternal truth that's going to endure from 2000 BC to 0 AD to 2009 to should the Lord tarry 2500 to have eternal truths that cut across all time, there must be some 
to eternal, external source that dwells outside of time is able to look at the purview of all of history and say this is the eternal truth that endures forever and forever and forever. In other words, the only source of absolute truth that we have about eternal matters and everything that is of true final importance is if there is a supreme being that would reveal it to us, that would speak to us. And this is the reason why we trust this book that we have before us. If it is just the words of Peter, this fisherman who became a Christian, and that is all that we have here 2,000 years later, then we can dismiss it as relative and say that's what they thought back then. But we don't think that now as enlightened people in the modern era. But if it is, as Peter says in 4.11, that these are the words of God and he is speaking as the words of God, that he is funneling an external, eternal being who is able to look over all of history and giving us an absolute pinpoint, an absolute reference point for eternal truth. And your confidence in believing this is that as you come to read this book more and more, there is a self-authenticating power that there is more here than the words of man. But I am here being addressed by a voice of one with authority over all men. Now who stands underneath my scrutiny and my authority and my criticism, but who authority I stand before. The word of God is our only possible logical, reasonable place to look to for eternal truths about the way that the world is going to end. Not scientists, not physicists, no matter how well credentialed, no matter how many degrees or prizes, this is the only place that we can get a fix on the end of the world or the end of all things. So it is absolutely important that we understand what Peter is and is not saying in First Peter 4, 7. And again, for those of you who are watching a clock, again, don't worry that I have not gotten past my first point. Again, it's 90% of the sermon, and then we're going to go through the rest of it very quickly. But this is the most important part. You miss this, and you won't really care about the rest. It's, it's therefore all these things are, the, the first part is the important part. So let me say what, let me say and elucidate a little bit here what Peter is saying and what he's not saying. Peter is not saying this. When he's saying the end of all things is near, Peter is not saying that when he wrote this, A.D. 60-something, we're not sure, it's about, most scholars would say A.D. 60-something, most scholars. So at A.D. 60-something, Peter's not saying the end of all things is near, meaning that Jesus is going to come back soon, next year, next decade, but within my lifetime, the end of all things is near. Peter is not saying that. And I need to take sharp issue with the unbelievers who would say back to me, well, you've got to say that. You've got to say that Peter was not saying that Jesus is going to come back in his lifetime. That that's not what he meant here in First Peter 4.7. You've got to say that because obviously, hello, he didn't. We're 2,000 years into this now, and he didn't come back in AD 70 or 90 or, or any time near the time of Peter. So of course you've got to say that Peter's not saying that. The reason why I take issue with that so sharply is because I would ask that unbeliever to consider a different point of view. The reason why I'm so certain that Peter did not mean that when he said the end of all things is near is that Jesus is coming back in his lifetime is not because Jesus didn't. That's a pretty compelling reason I give you. But it is because that Peter understood his 
eternal truth claims and what he knew about absolute truth from the only one that could ever speak to that authoritatively. Peter had his theology and his understanding about the end of the world. He learned it at the feet of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus says about the end of the world in Matthew 24, 36. So I believe that this must inform the way that Peter thinks about the end of the world as he is Jesus' disciple. So this is what Jesus said. And this needs to be our guide into what Peter could have and could not have meant when he says the end of all things is near. If you turn and look with me in Matthew 24, 36, from the words of Jesus, the one absolute eternal being who shared our mortal frame for 33 years and said, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, not, but only the Father. Let me read that one more time. No one knows about that day or hour, meaning the end of the world. If you read this in context, give it a little more time. If you read it in context, he's talking about the end of the world, and no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, unless Peter missed that class with Jesus, Peter cannot possibly be saying, angels don't know, not even the Son of God knows, but I know the end of the world is going to come. Jesus is going to come back in my lifetime. The end is near. Peter could not have meant that. Peter must have taken seriously Jesus' words. You do not know when the end is going to come. Matter of fact, angels do not know. Matter of fact, even the Son of God, I do not know. Peter, you do not know when the end of the world is. So Peter cannot be saying, at the end of the world, I know it. It's in my lifetime. 80, 70, 80, 80. Sometime around there. He cannot be saying that. And it's just an interesting thing, I think, that he goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, as it was in the days of Noah, we have looked previously in First Peter the importance of Noah in speaking about the end of the world in the mind of Peter. Where did Peter get that from? It's because Noah was important in the mind of Christ when he spoke about the end of the world. And Noah informed Jesus and therefore Noah informed Peter about the, the way that the world is going to come to an end and what our attitude ought to be as the end of the world approaches. So these are the words of Jesus. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. <laughs> I just, as it was in the days of Noah. In other words, everybody was saying, come on, Noah, you idiot. Building this ark, gathering the animals. You fool. You fool. We are spending all of our resources on our homes and our camels and our flocks. And you're spending all of your money on this ark for God. You idiot. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. This is an amazing alignment. If you do not believe the Bible is the word of God, 
there is at least this credibility that you must give. There, there's this person, Peter, who existed, who learned his understanding from this other person that existed named Jesus in this amazing alignment where Jesus is saying, this is the way the world is going to end. Therefore, keep watch. Don't fall asleep. Be alert. Live focused lives. Be self-controlled. Be clear-headed. And this is exactly what Peter is saying in the same way, in the same use of that therefore. And the upshot of Jesus' words is that you do not know on what day the Lord will come. It's why you have to be alert because you do not know when Jesus Christ is going to come back. You do not know when the world is going to come to an end. The reason why I have reason to believe that when Peter said the end of all things is near is that he was not thinking soon is because if you just look up just a few verses earlier, again, the words of Jesus going into the ear of Peter, then now with the Holy Spirit coming out of his mouth in these words, Peter would have heard Jesus in Matthew twenty four fourteen say, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, Peter, you don't know when the end will come. But you know this, this much I will say. I don't know when the end will come, Peter, but this much I will let you know. The gospel is going to be preached among all the nations, among all the peoples. And when it is spread globally, like the waters cover over the seas, then you will know the time is ripe for the second coming. And Peter did not know that that was going to take, you know, maybe up till now, but he didn't know, but he's projecting. He just, he just does not know when the end is going to be. So I really want to bring us now to a clear focus here. Then what does Peter mean when he says the end of all things is near? What is, what is, what is Peter's meaning in that enigmatic statement, the end of all things is near? And let me just say, let me just say just, so I don't track the end of the world by doomsday predictions. I track the end of the world by actually uh, missiologists by people speaking on missions. So when we had the perspective class here early this year, I grabbed any single person that was coming to speak for our perspective missions class and anybody who I thought could speak with some degree of expertise on when the gospel will be preached to all the nations so that the end of the world will come and Jesus Christ will come back. Anybody who could speak to that, I would grab them during the perspectives class afterwards and I would ask them about it. And you know what they kind of universally said to me and what their universal answer was? They don't really know. We don't know how long it's going to take to evangelize the rest of the world. We don't, we don't know. So let me bring us back to this question here. What does Peter mean when he says the end of all things is near? He means do not believe anyone who says, I know that Jesus Christ is coming back in our lifetime. The Bible flatly contradicts that and says, you do not know that. And I've heard people say it. I've heard speakers preach it. And they've kind of roused up the crowd by saying that, Jesus, that God is going to come back. Jesus Christ is going to come back within our lifetime. And if I go on the authority of the word of God and Jesus Christ, they do not know that. Do not believe anyone when they say, I know that Jesus Christ is coming back in our lifetime. But Peter would also say, do not believe anybody that says Jesus Christ is not coming back in our lifetime. 
don't believe anybody that is going to say, and, but look, we can, we can be casual about it. You know, like, you know, there's, there's still a lot of evangelism to be done and we don't really know when God's coming back. And so I think we can be pretty sure Jesus Christ is not going to come back in our lifetime. The Bible also flatly contradicts that the entire purpose of it saying you do not know is meant to say he could come back at any time and it's not up to you and you're not going to be given forewarning. The reason why that Jesus can come back at any time and the right reason why Peter is saying the end of all things is near is because after the incarnation, the crucifixion, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we are in the period of God's end game. I, I don't know how else to say that. The reason what, what Peter means when he says the end of all things is near is after the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, we are now in the period of God's end game. All the pieces have been set, all of the major events of human history that God is working from Genesis in his redemptive history as he accords history. All of the major events have all happened. And now there is only one left. And this last event that is to take place is going to absolutely dwarf every single event that has ever happened before. The biggest moment in human history is the last event. And we are right up against it. There, there is no other thing left. Do you understand? There, there, there is the final moment, the climax of all of human history. And we are in that age where that is the last thing that we are waiting for. I think it's a really interesting thing that, you know, if you've studied history at all, if any of you during college took a Western Civ course or just kind of a, a civilization course or a history course, it, it, I think it's one of the most interesting things that that the first coming of Jesus Christ, the marker zero is the marker zero AD. And whether you're a Christian or not, whether you are an American or, or, or Islamic, whether you are, uh, I mean, it just doesn't matter, wherever you are in the world, there is zero AD as kind of our marker point of human history. Isn't that a phenomenal thing? It doesn't matter whether you are Buddhist or Hindu, you still go by, everyone goes by the same calendar, and, you know, during the big New Year celebration, which we're going to hit in about a month, and, you know, and Dick Clark, is he still, you know, God willing, if he's going to still be there in the globe, all around the world, like Dubai, and now, you know, Australia gets it first, and everybody in the world, doesn't matter what faith, human history is split by 0 AD. And the funny thing about that, I didn't know this actually until college, actually, to my great shame, I didn't know BC counted down. So I was got, I, all up until college, all during high school, I got BC all wrong, because I thought BC operated like AD. Do you know what I'm talking about? AD counts up. BC counts down. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, so like 500 and then goes to 400, then 200 BC, you know, then 100 BC before Christ. That should have made logical sense, but as a high schooler, I just didn't know that. I thought 500 was ahead of 400. Am I the only person here? So BC counts down to the birth of Christ. Human history counts down to the birth of Christ. And then Anul Domini, the year of our Lord, meaning it's not just a year. We're talking about the age of our Lord, the time of our Lord. In other words, the last age, the final age, counts up. A.D. 0, A.D. 15, A.D. 33, A.D. 70, the fall of the Jerusalem temple. A.D. 100, A.D. 300, A.D. all the way to A.D. 2009. It counts up. And the whole reason why it counts up on every single calendar around the world is because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. 
So there is a count down to BC and then a count up after the birth of Christ. The clock in heaven does not operate that way. I promise you. Clocks in heaven always count down because the clocks of heaven are run by one who stands outside of time and he himself is authoritative over time, not governed by it. The clocks in heaven counted down. And the the clocks in heaven, I don't know how many ticks that they have, but they have only two major markers, two big events. And one is the first intrusion of the Son of God, eternal, perfect, holy, into our fallen world. Where God himself comes upon and walks upon the earth. God walking, the creator walking on the creation. I mean, the world should have just collapsed at that moment underneath the weight of Jesus. And it was in divine condescension that he who is the I am, who created the world and the universe with a word, was able to walk on the ground without crushing it. So AD 0 B.C. counts down to the birth of Christ. And the clock in heaven does not run on A.D. Our clocks do. But the clock in heaven runs on B.C. and runs on B.2.C. It runs on the birth of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And it is counting down inexorably to that moment. I don't know how else to say that. The fact that we in our limited finite time, not knowing when the world is going to end, have to count up is not the same as God who stands authoritatively eternally over time and is counting down to a moment fixed, predetermined, predestined by his divine foreknowledge, which no one is privy to know, not even angels, that God the Father, God the Father, the one being in the universe alone knows Exactly, and he has fixed a time. So we do not have, you know, I'll live 2009 and then 2011, and I'll still be here in 2020, and the world and New York City and everything, it's going to be here in 2050. We do not, we count up indefinitely because we don't know. God is counting down until a divine moment, just like he did with the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. that moment means that we are on the clock brothers and sisters we do not live our lives as if we were drifting as if we were just kind of whatever it doesn't matter we have all the time in the world to waste and spend at our leisure by our pleasure however way we want there is a countdown to the second coming of Christ where the end of the world and all of human history will be brought to a close and we do not know when that is I love the fact the world 2012. It's crazy. I mean, you know, scholars don't even believe that's accurate in any way. But, you know, I like the fact that that it's in our consciousness that 2012 could be the day or it could be the year that the world ends. Because the biblical perspective is that we are to live every single year as if it could be the year in which Jesus Christ returns. We do not know. Missiologists, we could have had it all wrong. The way that we count nations, that all nations need to be preached, and the way that God counts nations, we don't know. So therefore, therefore, we live not just in any simple way. We are to love one another 
show hospitality and serve one another. And so let me go through those at an incredibly quick speed. If you believe that the end of the world, that the end of all things is near, meaning that the biblical counsel is that you don't know, live alert, live self-controlled, live clear-minded. It means also live a life of love. And it is by no accident that I think that after you have the end of all things is near, therefore, that one command is about yourself, namely be clear-minded, self-controlled, and pray. And then three of the commands, and a three-to-one ratio is about other people. In other words, stop thinking about yourself and living life about yourself because the rest of eternity, God is going to take care of you in a way that you just don't even can imagine here. And I fully believe this. Whoever it is and said this in, human, in, in history, in Christian history, retirement is for people who don't believe in heaven. What in the world do you need with retirement for? Why? Why would you spend the last 10 years of your life resting where you are going to go to eternal rest? Love one another, show hospitality, serve one another. And let me go through this very quickly, what it means by saying love one another. Love one another, and the reason why I say graciously, when it says that love one another, when love covers a multitude of sins in light of the, the end of all things, means this. That, you know, let me just bring back the plain illustration just one last time. If as that plane is plummeting, and we don't know whether we're going to, I mean, that's why everyone was screaming about. I mean, if I, if I had not been asleep, I think I may have been screaming too. I mean, we don't know if, the, if it's going to be, the end is near for all of us. We don't know that. And the thing is, I think that it would have been insanity if I had kind of happened on two people as that plane is plummeting, we don't know what's going to happen. If two people are kind of looking at each other and saying, all right, you know what? I've had it. You, you keep on edging over your elbow into my part of the armrest and it's it's we got to share this thing but you are now transgressing on my part of the armrest you are you're wronging me you know and i just you know what what is this all about or if two people are arguing about the end of all things is near so love one another deeply don't expose every single sin we don't have time for that love covers over a multitude of sins this is what that means doesn't mean just kind of sweep sin under the rug or just sweep wrongs in, a, in any community that's lived together for years. There are going to be genuine and actual real hurts and wrongs. But when it says love covers over a multitude of sins, it means that that fire of anger and retribution and bitterness and hurt and woundedness and unforgiveness is not flamed and fueled. Oh my gosh, how could that person do that? It is smothered and denied oxygen. It is covered over by love. It is blanketed and stamped down and covered because saying, we don't have time for all of this. And there's a focus to say the end is near. There is so much to do. I say, love covers over the sin and let us move on together. Love one another graciously. Show hospitality genuinely. And the reason why I say genuinely is because it says show hospitality without grumbling. Grumbling is that is the word in Greek that this is the word actually in Greek. It's called gongosmo. <laughs> it's just like it sounds. Gongosmo. Gongosmo. It means this. Love one another without show hospitality without that what that means is that when somebody comes over to your house 
You know, another churchman comes over to your house, and you are just kind of sweet as can be, as, and you know, serving them pie and all that, and you're just kind of happy. But in your heart, you're, I don't really like this person and all that, and this person then is, you know, I mean, I got to be nice, put a kind of Christian face, but there's all this grumbling going on in my heart. Get rid of that without the grumbling. Show hospitality. Why? Because the end is near. We are heading for the kingdom of God, eternal. That is our citizenship. And until we get there, we live in a foreign world. And it is hard on all of us. It hurts all of us. All of our patience is tested. All of our love is wearing. It is a difficult thing. And so we must show each other hospitality. Hospitality. That word is not a bad translation at all. Hospital. Hospitality. Make your home into a mini hospital where other Christians beaten up by the world, persecuted, misunderstood, and rejected by a different value system than we have with unbelievers. Make your home into a little place where they can come and not experience grumbling, but from the heart, a genuine love and acceptance. The early Christians that Peter was writing to, as they are making their way into heaven, they saw every single home that was a believer's home as a place of refuge. The world does not understand me. The world rejects me because I don't love what it loves and I love something it does not love, namely Jesus. And every single home along my way is a mini place of refuge, is a hospital. Exercise, hospitality. So in light of the coming and the end of the world, love one another graciously. Show hospitality genuinely. And the last one is serve another glorifyingly. That's just a word that I made up and I'll just speak to it really quickly. Serve one another glorifyingly is that serve other people in such a way that people know that it's all coming from Jesus. Which means that you've got to draw from Jesus and not try to love people on your own strength, which you cannot anyway. Love one another, serve one another in a way that gives glory to God and this is the way that you've got to do it. Any community like New Hope Fellowship, do you understand that New Hope Fellowship runs on love? The primary resource that is necessary for the continuation and the mission of New Hope Fellowship is love. A Christian community's primary resource is love and its primary source is Jesus. And so the admonition of this text is go often to the well of Jesus' love and dip in and draw out oil for your lamp so that when he returns that he will find your lamp lit and burning bright. And you can look back on Jesus Christ and say, I was not weary in well-doing. And there's so many times I wanted to give up, so many times I just wanted to give in to bitterness and unforgiveness. And I did not grow weary in my love and service of other people because of you. Because of you. I would run out of love. I would run out of patience. I would run out of grace. And I would run to you. And you would fill me back up again. I would pour out again. And everybody knew I didn't have it in me. And it was to your glory. So in light of the second coming, we love one another graciously. We show hospitality genuinely. And we serve one another glorifyingly. So let me close on this. Speaking this one more time, that if you do not believe that the end of all things is near, you will do all of these things, but you will not do them well. I believe that a Christian can operate, love one another, uh, serve one another, 
try to glorify God. I believe you can do those things. I do. And not believe that the end of all things is near. Because many people do. I think many Christians do. But you will never do it in this radical way in which Christ commands unless you understand that the banner he puts over all those things. I'm coming back. End of all things near. And so let me say this again in the words of Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. This is not the words of a raving crackpot on the street talking about the end of the world. This is about a clear-minded, balanced, self-controlled statement about the end of all things. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes, I would believe it, put in there, add in tsunamis in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. One of the most wonderful images in all the Bible. These all are the beginning of birth pains. Everything you've suffered is the beginning of birth pains. Everything this world has suffered is the beginning of birth pains. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, the end, the end will come. The end. You understand those two beautiful words in the Bible, the end? We're not just living interminably. This kind of life just kind of goes on 2,000, year 3,000, year 4,000. God forbid. The end. It will be uh, the end. And when the rest of the world hears that frightening statement of the end, they panic, they buy duct tape, they build shelters and bunkers, they buy firearms and stock up on canned food. When we hear those beautiful words, the end, that word in the Greek is telos. And if it serves the same dual function in the Greek that it serves in the English, the end will come, not only meaning the termination of history, the end, the end meaning the goal, the purpose for which history existed in the first place. There is an end of purpose. It's not random for however long human history exists, year upon year. It is not random, not going to some kind of just no purpose, just kind of running untrammeled without rails. It is predestined to an end, and that end, that purpose, is the birth of a new heaven and a new earth. And so I do not believe that the world is going to close because of governments or its terrorists. The end of the world is not going to come by weapons of mass destruction, whether they be chemical, biological, or nuclear. The world is not going to be destroyed as if the world were in control of ecological disaster. The world will come to an end when their final answer to the question that has been rumored for thousands of years is answered. And that question that began in AD 0 is who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And that very, probably the most famous name that has ever been in all of human history is rotating in the conscience of Christian and non-Christian alike, Buddhist, Islam. Who is Jesus Christ? 
And the world hangs on that question mark at some point undisclosed that we do not know tomorrow or a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now. There will be one standing again upon the earth saying, I am. I am. And before the foundation of the world, I am. And long after the world is gone, I am. And I've come to bring history to a close and take all who belong to me to the place that you have been destined for. And there are many rooms there. And if it were not so, I would not have said. There is an end of the world and we need to be ready. Therefore, we live in a certain way, not like those who do not. Would you bow with me as we come and pray before the Lord? If the words that I've spoken and if the words of First Peter have sobered you today, that's exactly the effect. The NIV translation clear-minded means literally be sober. It's not talking about drunkenness in the physical sense. It's talking about drunkenness and living a life where you just kind of do whatever you want. It's, it's what somebody who's an alcoholic does. They just Once you're under the influence, you just do whatever you want. It's talking about being clear-minded, being intentional, purposeful. Every second counts. Every day is important. We're under a clock. And it's not just the pressure clock of the world's tyranny of the urgent. We're under God's time. God's time. You are living in God's time. And he has made each day significant until there are days no more. We come before the Lord in prayer and say, Father, that we want to respond to you in prayer. And we want to say, Father God, would you gather us? Would you focus us? Would you not allow us to live, Father God, drifting or untethered, as if we could just do and live however way we want, squander our days, waste away weeks and months, doing things of no account and of no enduring value? Allow us the grace, Father, to see clearly and invest in those things which will count in eternity. That when we see you face to face, we will not regret how we have spent these precious few years that we've been given. None of us know the day or the age. None of us even know how long we have. So we pray for lives that count. We live not in just hourless days, God. We know we live in your time. And we ask that that would focus us give us purpose and divine meaning they, every single thing that we do as church or families or individuals have its echoes and repercussions forever to your great glory God we pray these things in Jesus name